as most of you may know, I've been preaching through the book of John. Still in the first chapter. Um, <clears throat> I went through John's baptism last time. Found in verses 19 through 23. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you will. This was a section of Scripture where we came across the first delegation found in the Gospel of John. The Jews commissioned representatives with a special goal in mind, and the mission is to find out the exact identity of John the Baptist. In the process, we discovered the people had many misconceptions and theories about the identity of John. They perceived him to be the Messiah, or Elijah, or the prophet. John, however, corrects their misunderstandings by quoting from the book of Isaiah. We see this in John 1.23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This then leads us to today's portion of Scripture, found in verses 24 through 28. Starting in verse 24, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for pouring out your grace on us undeserving sinners through the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your promises, for the promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you especially for this body, Lord, this local church. I ask, Lord, that you might grant me the wisdom and strength to proclaim your word today in a clear and powerful way. Lord, open my heart to true understanding. Lord, look past my weaknesses and mistakes and edify your sheep today. Open each one's heart here to your truth. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the text today, you'll notice this is the same conversation we talked about last time. It is still the same day, the same conversation between the Jews and John the Baptist. This is all one long dialogue. I split it up for the sake of time. 
Notice verse 24 is basically a repeat of verse 19. Both speak about the origin of these representatives. Notice one important thing, however. If you compare the two, you'll find that verse 24 is more specific. We find out which sect or group of Jews or group these Jews are from. Sorry, verse 24 says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They come from the Pharisees specifically. I don't know if you've noticed, but the general term Jews does not always mean unity. There were obviously divisions within Judaism. There are, of course, the Pharisees, which are stricter and more conservative in many regards. They not only believe in the central governing principles of the Mosaic Law, especially the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, known as the Torah. They also adhered to the Oral Law, which is revelation given by prophets later after Moses. The Oral Laws also the oral law, sorry, also consisted of interpretations of the written law of Moses by rabbis. They believe God permitted them to, in essence, use their reasoning and apply laws to a given problem. This, of course, results in the 600 or more laws enforced upon the Jew, regardless if God gave them these laws. Then there are the Sadducees, who are more liberal. And they likewise believe in the application of the written law or the law of Moses. But they reject the oral aspect of the law. They also reject the resurrection and therefore other aspects of the afterlife. These Jews, however, are sent from the Pharisees, John says. In verse 25, we see that John's answers, which we went over last time, only produced more questions. Verse 25, they ask him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Basically, it's, in light of your own confession, John, why are you baptizing? Do you deny to be the Christ, or Elijah, or the prophet? By what authority are you baptizing then? Last time we discussed issues like the promised coming of Elijah, and the fulfillment of the promise. We saw who the prophet is as understood by Peter in the book of Acts. The understanding, of course, of the Apostle Peter is that Jesus is the promised prophet prophesied in the Old Testament. So why is John baptizing then? Well, John answers this in verse 26. It says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Like I said last time, John's ministry is largely preparatory. I believe so is his baptism. We see here that his baptism is of water, but elsewhere we see it as a baptism of repentance. And what is Repentance. It is a recognition of one's sin and a turning away from sin. True repentance is always accompanied by faith, results and resulting in a turning not only from sin, but turning to the true God. This is necessary for salvation. 
John says elsewhere to bear fruit worthy of repentance or in keeping with repentance. This baptism of repentance was very important to the coming of the Messiah. The message is repent for the kingdom is at hand. The king is coming to establish his holy kingdom. The necessity for a forerunner to prepare the way is because the people are not ready to meet the coming Lord and King. Now John comes and says, you all need a bath. It is interesting that John's ministry is to the Jews primarily who thought they were right with God. This has been the plan of God from all eternity to establish a holy people through which the Messiah would come. Choose the Jews for he choose chose the Jews for this specific purpose. Excuse me. We see that after Messiah has come and he has fulfilled his own ministry and purpose, the gospel is proclaimed to all. John twelve When I Jesus am lifted up, speaking of the cross. Speaking of when he would be crucified, he says, I will draw all men to myself. After Jesus died on the cross and thereby made atonement, draws to himself both Jews and Gentiles. That has also been God's plan from the beginning. John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. When I read this, I hear an echo of verse 10 and 11 of this chapter. The theme John started in verses 10 and 11 continues in our passage today. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, He came to his own, being the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. John the Baptist affirms John's words now in verse 26 where he says, One stands among you who you do not know. The sinless Son of God in human flesh is standing in the midst of you. and You do not know Him. You don't recognize Him. You don't acknowledge Him. You don't know Him. Is this not the reality of all of us? before regeneration. We likewise were blinded by sin. We didn't know Him. We were not spiritually capable of seeing the things of the Spirit. Don't be fooled by those who will say, you have to make the decision for Jesus and you are able to do this, and only you. While there is truth in that statement, to an extent, the Bible also says in Romans 8 and John 6, and I would argue the totality of God's revelation, statements like, those who are in the flesh cannot do what is pleasing to God. And John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws, sent me draws him. This is, flows directly from the nature of man and the fall 
and his sinful nature. Man's whole being is affected by this sin and is not able to even see the things of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again in order for you to see. But you might say, John says in John 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I mean, Jesus says, well, if you look at the context of John 12, it is the Greeks coming to Jesus and he does not reveal himself to them. At this point in time, Jesus promises that after he dies, he will draw both Greeks and Jews to himself. So among you stands one that you do not know. And then verse 27, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Here John sort of reiterates the previous statement he made. If you remember verse 15 of this chapter, we read it before, but John makes a similar statement. When we compare the two, I believe, we see basically the same statement being made twice. Verse 15, this was, a, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And verse 27, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Verse 15, he ranks before me. Verse 27, the strap of those whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Both of these verses, John is elevating the Christ and realizing his own finite humanity. He does this all the time. Verse 23, he refers to himself as a voice rather than a person. He refers to himself not as a person, but rather focuses on Christ as the person. He says, the one who comes after me has sandals I am not worthy to untie. So whatever John does or says, he always comes back to Jesus. He sets a clear example for us. When we think about it, it is all about Christ. John does a great job setting that example. The Bible is very clear on these things, and the one thing I always find fascinating is the geography found in its pages. This book is an accurate account of history. It tells events in time and locations with such accuracy. And here John feels it necessary to mention the location where John was doing his ministry. Verse 28 these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Why is this significant? Well, I can only speculate. It is definitely interesting to note where this location was historically. As far as the location goes, Bethany across the Jordan is some miles north of the Dead Sea. It is on the east side of the Jordan River. And this geography geographical location has rich history. It is believed to be the place which the prophet Elijah ascended to heaven. If you remember, Elijah did not die. He was taken up to heaven. And this would also be where Moses would have stood and gazed at the promised land. 
Moses was not able to enter into Canaan because of his rebellion. God took him up to a place overlooking the land where he was able to see but could not go in. It is many times hard to say exactly why the biblical writers mention the exact locations of events. But it is of great benefit to us. It shows us that this book is not something disconnected from history or geography. Historians will tell you that this book is accurate and can be trusted. And that would make sense since the ultimate author is God, the maker of history. He has formed the very fabrics of time and space. I think of my own struggles when traveling, of getting lost and confused. And then God does not have this problem, as we see here. He always knows the exact place and the exact location where anything takes place in each one of our lives, as well as in the biblical. Now John says, this is the place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So how would this have looked? Was John a part of the church growth movement? Was his biggest concern numbers? Or most important thing was to get the largest number of people into the church and then deal with the sin afterwards? No, we'll see that John's method of ministry was very different than that. We don't see a businessman well dressed out there asking, how would you like us to do church that you would come to us and worship with us? Though this is very prevalent in this modern time, it is not biblical. It would be consumerism. It is all about the numbers. When you want to see, sell a product, what you want to do is find out what people like or dislike. And then form or conform your product accordingly. If you want a successful seller in the market, you need to get with the program of the people. But God, from the beginning, said how church is to be done. He said what material and colors he would have the people use to make his building. He demanded in what attitude and fashion people were to worship him. After all, the church's primary goal is to worship God, right? That would mean it is all about God, and he gets to define how we do that. In God's church, we conform to his ways, not the other way around. A major part of the modern, modern church has this backwards. Modern man seems to think they can just revise God's prescribed way of worship and fit to fit that of the unregenerate man. Anyways, that's the sermon for another time. Let's read a text in Matthew 3, starting in verse 4.
while we read this, think of what I just said and try to imagine what John would think if we try to cram that mentality or idea into the text. The text assumes certain things. It assumes the right to demand certain attitudes and assumes God's absolute authority. It assumes Jesus' absolute supremacy and authority as well. It demands a certain holiness by the individual wanting to partake in this baptism. So Matthew 3, verse 4 and onward. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Then Matthew goes on to narrate Jesus' baptism, done by John, of course. But this parallels verse 26 of our text. We see the fulfillment of this promise in Acts and the Pentecost. The Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven, being sent from the Father and the Son, comes down and indwells believers. What was an outward sign at the Pentecost? It was divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on them. And here we have, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was a water baptism and one of repentance, symbolizing cleansing and preparation. Quoting John again in John 1, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Sorry, that was actually Matthew 3. John's ministry is to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And this took place in the Jordan River. And there were flocks of people coming to him, wanting to be baptized. And what was his message to them? He said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. Get ready. And what were Jesus' opening words in ministry? If you turn to Mark one fifteen. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is the baptism, and why, what is baptism, and why is it important? 
Well, I believe baptism is very important. First of all, because God commands it. And secondly, it is the great, a great blessing to us as well. It is the first step of obedience after having obeyed the gospel. To obey the command to be baptized without first obeying Jesus' command to repent and believe the gospel is, of course, backwards and only reaps more condemnation on the unbeliever. This only results in a false hope of an unbeliever deceiving himself to be right with God through self-righteousness. But the believer, having trusted in the amazing grace of God proclaimed through the gospel, the convert's duty is then to get baptized. And water baptism is a symbol of an inward reality. It symbolizes the reality of cleanliness inside. The person has been emerged under the cleansing power of the blood through faith and is raised up to new life in Christ. This is vitally important. The sinner who has been cleansed by the blood now comes and makes a public confession and thereby testifies to the power of God. If you have ever been to a baptism and heard the wonderful testimonies, you realize what a blessing that is to witness. I'll share a bit of my own testimony here related to baptism. I attended a baptism while I was still an unbeliever. God had been convicting me for a while about my debauched life. I was under heavy weight for a while with the sin in my life. It was a baptism where God publicly displayed His power and mercy and grace. Through the witness of these people who had been where I was at the time, they testified of God's power to bring a sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life. All I knew was death. God used this as one of the means of bringing me to Him. Through the crushing weight of sin and the convicting of the Spirit, the display of His power, I became convinced of the way out. Through the gospel being preached and the testimonies of those who had believed the gospel and testified of its power, I came to Him who died for sinners and extended His hand even to me personally. After a couple weeks of pressure, I was forced to give in to God's grace and He saved me. What amazing grace. So baptism is a wonderful ordinance given to the church by Christ. We could get into the differing views on this subject like paedo-baptism, also known as infant baptism or creedal baptism, which is believers only baptism, and the issues surrounding that debate. Or we could talk about the methods like immersion or pouring, but we're running out of time. But I do believe all true churches will practice baptism. Not all true churches will practice it in the same way, but I think biblically speaking it is believers who have made a trusted profession in Christ are to be baptized. I get this from the testimony of the Bible. 
Baptism is a follow-up command after the first, which is to believe the gospel. I don't believe infants can believe the gospel. In conclusion, I want us to think about the importance of baptism and the fact that Jesus commands it. While I think John's baptism was slightly different in nature, it is an example to be looked at when thinking about the subject. It was different for one because it was before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Once Jesus died and ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit to baptize with this, with power and with fire. So John's baptism was a foreshadow of a better to come. We have this account in Acts 19 if you want to turn there. I'll read a good portion of it. Acts 19.1 and onwards. Might help if I wasn't in John. <laughs> Acts 19.1 And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there was such a thing as a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what baptiz baptism were you baptized then? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the, with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's baptism was one of repentance looking forward to a fulfillment. As Paul states here, he baptized into repentance. And then he told him about Jesus who was to come and to believe in him. This fulfillment is found in the in the coming and indwelling of the Spirit. We see this in the fact that His ministry fades away quickly. It was never meant to be permanent. It was to be. It was to prepare a way, and so was His baptism. Once the promised one came, the old faded away. We see after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the command is to baptize believers. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the final form of baptism as revealed in Scripture. So how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, we can learn great things by looking at John and his ministry. We can look at his persistence to elevate Christ to the highest place. or his humility as well as his boldness when faced with opposition. Let us strive for this kind of character, a humble attitude towards our own humanity, but also a bold, firm stance when it comes to holiness and what is good, honorable, and righteous.
Let us go into the world making disciples, baptizing them and making making disciples, baptizing them and being baptized if you aren't already. If you have not repented and believed in the gospel, today is the day the scripture commands you to do that. Tomorrow is not promised. Turn from your sin and turn towards God and after be baptized as a public confession, profession of your faith and a testimony to the power of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before you again. Thank you for your word once again. Thank you for your goodness to us by giving us a clear word. Lord, we confess we cannot know it apart from your Spirit. Remind us constantly of this truth, Lord. We need your word and your Spirit to guide us, open our hearts to receive it. We ask, especially as we think about baptism, John's baptism, and what we can take away from this text this morning, Lord. Help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to have the attitude of Christ wherever we go. Lord, for those who do not believe yet, we pray that you would have mercy on those also. Please open their eyes to the futility of sin and the glories of Christ. Lord, bring conviction of sin and a desire for you, Lord. We trust that your gospel is the power unto salvation. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.